I'm Trey Gaunce Phillips, and welcome to the Prodigal Stories podcast, a show where Billy Hallowell and I take you through some of the most powerful stories of the day, stories of hope, transformation, and intrigue. On today's episode, we welcome James Coates, the Canadian pastor who garnered international attention after he was arrested and ultimately jailed for more than 30 days. His crime? Holding in-person church services amid the pandemic, a violation of top-down government mandates put in place at the time. So without further ado, let's welcome Pastor Coates to the podcast. So, Pastor James Coates, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, obviously, you've become uh, something of a, a household name, uh, certainly among Christians uh, over the last couple of years in the wake of, of COVID. But before we get into that, I just want to ask, how are you doing? How's your family doing? You know, we're doing well. Um, obviously, adjusting to new normal as it relates to our lives and the increased profile, but we're doing pretty well. My family is has responded really well to the difficulties that we experienced a year ago. Having said that, uh, my my youngest son is certainly aware that a year ago this time I was in prison and uh, and is showing some signs that, that he does recall that and that uh, the memories of that aren't pleasant. But, but overall, I think our families responded really well to everything that's taken place in our lives. Absolutely. And I, you know, I want to go back, you mentioned your son, and before we get into uh, your, your time in jail and what that was like, I wonder if you can take us back uh, to 2020 when all of this first started uh, and you decided that you could no longer, as pastor of Grace Community, keep the church closed. In good conscience, you could no longer do that. Uh, can you explain why you decided to open and, and what that process for you was like? Yeah, and, and just for clarification, uh, I'm the pastor of Grace Life Church, but the the reference to Grace Community Church is appropriate because as we later on discuss the book, God vs. Government, uh, that's the, the church that John MacArthur pastors. Sure, and yes. in that book, uh, both stories of Grace Life Church and Grace Community Church are present. So um, so anyway, back in, in 2020, when the pandemic began, we were like everyone else, where we were struggling with the um, just what to do as it relates to this virus. The government was saying certain things about its severity. Everything was beginning to shut down. And and so reluctantly, we opted to comply with the governing authorities. But yet early on, even as we were communicating to our congregation, we were already expressing the tension between the need to gather and the need to be submissive to the government and trying to discern when it is that we need to obey God, not men. I mean, that was very early in our messaging to our congregation. And as time went on and we realized the severity of the virus was not what they deemed it to be and that it really did appear as though this was a, a government overreach, an infringement on a territory that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ and that we as elders have a responsibility to uphold the headship of Christ over his church. We came to the conclusion that it was necessary for us to be faithful to open our doors and let our congregation make their own decision as it relates to masking and capacity limits and social distancing. And so we did that in, in June of 2020, we opened our doors and, and, and began the process of allowing our people to, to make their own decision and, and shepherded them uh, along with the conviction that we had that we needed to open our church. 
And I wonder if you can give me, uh, give us some insight, not just into uh, how your church responded, how the congregants of Grace Life responded, but how maybe the community at large in Edmonton, what was the the buzz when you decided that Grace Life was going to reopen your doors? Uh, what was the response you got from the community? Well, it was polarized. And a lot of the reason why it was polarized is because of the negative attention we were getting from the mainstream media. I mean, the mainstream media painted us as villains, uh, painted us as those who were lawless, careless. And so if you read the comment thread on the the articles written by the mainstream media, uh, it was not good. I mean, the vitriol that was being thrown our way, the animosity, even some of the emails that we were getting to our office account, uh, awful. And yet, on the other side, we had tons of support. There were folks that were really supportive of what we were doing. Uh, they were grateful that somebody was finally standing up and 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 pushing back on this this government overreach. And so it was polar. It was incredibly polar. And um, and so we we had a lot of support. We had a lot of negativity. But the negativity, I mean, when you're convinced that that you need to do something to honor and glorify Christ, you're not concerned about the court of public opinion. Mm -hmm. That's not that's not the basis upon which you're doing what you're doing. And, and you expect that. I mean, the, the scriptures teach the world will hate us. And so as we are faithful and desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, we're promised persecution. So the the negativity from our our community was not was not a deterrent to honoring and glorifying Christ in this in this uh, in this season. If anything, it just validated that what we were doing was the right thing to do. Hmm. And, and so, yeah, we had, we had both uh, incredible support and, and incredible hostility. And, uh, and that's the nature of this whole season, I think, across the board. I think it's been very polarized, very divisive, uh, not just in our country, but, uh, but, but all around the world. Yeah. And, you know, here in the United States, and certainly we've seen some of this in Canada, is uh, this um, knee-jerk reaction to think that everything has some sort of political motivation. Uh, but as you've alluded to, your decision to reopen your church, uh, your convictions about staying the course with your church was not politically motivated at all, even though you've sort of been pigeonholed as this political activist. I wonder if you can respond to people who want to put you into that framework. Well, yeah. So, I mean, our stance was a biblical stand and it was, it was, it was about the headship of Christ over his church. It was theological in nature. Now we came to realize that, that because Jesus is Lord over all, that as we take this biblical stand, it will usher us into the political sphere, but that was secondary tertiary. It was an effect of our stance being biblical and theological. And so we, we, we understood that there was a sense in which we were going to be ushered into that sphere and we had to be able to give an account for what we were doing in the context of the political realm, the broader community. But when it comes down to it, this was all about obedience to Christ. And, and we weren't afraid to, to be able to speak to what was happening in the world on a political level, but that was not the goal or the aim it was just to obey Christ. And as we did that, what God did is he shined the light upon our church. And as he shined the light upon our church, it just allowed the gospel to go forth. And it allowed Christ to be exalted and glorified. And so even if there were Christians who were against our stand, there were so many believers who were either strengthened or even people who came to Christ through our stance and, and realized that, 
either they weren't walking with Christ previously because they could look at their life and realize that there's no way in the world that they would take the stand that we did and that 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 shocked them awake and 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 to realize their spiritual condition or they just looked at what we were doing and said, "You know what? Clearly their God's real because they would not be doing this if if uh if he wasn't." So um really just an incredible, incredible time that we've gone through and the way that God's used it. But but at the core of it, it was about Christ, his headship. It was biblical, theological in nature. And the the political stuff that came with it was just sort of secondary because we now had this voice to be able to communicate to the broader public about what was happening in, uh, in the world. In fact, you can see that even in the story that I tell in God versus government with respect to our church, there was a point where we wrote an open letter on our website to address the uh, the broader population of Alberta that wasn't a theological address because we'd done that in our preaching. This was more mm-hmm. us appealing to Albertans to understand that in taking the stand, we are doing the thing that we believe loves them most because as we honor Christ, we believe that's best for our neighbor. Honoring Christ is always for the best of our neighbor. And so we did speak to our, 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 our province in that way. But again, that was secondary and, and required as a result of the biblical stand that we took. And, you know, your story, as you well know now, uh, reached past just your province or past Canada and, and spread around the world. I know so many um, believers here in the United States started uh, to pay attention to your story, of course, uh, when you ended up being imprisoned uh, for more than 30 days. Uh, but I want to ask if we can back up just a little bit. You said you reopened the church uh, in the summer of 2020. There was some time before you were imprisoned. What was going through your mind? Obviously, you were confident spiritually in your decision, but what was going through your mind? Did you ever imagine you could end up in the place you ultimately ended up? No. So we, you know, we opened up in June 2020. We did have a handful of cases a couple of weeks into that. We ended up going to live stream for two Sundays just to be cautious. And and then we opened back up again. Um sort of late July, and we were open all the way until things got heated with our governing authorities. Um, I did not expect what happened to have happened. There's no way that we could have anticipated that even as we were seeing things progress. And even as you know, arrests were were kind of on the table, never even thought for a moment that it would have the visibility and the impact that it did. I mean, we were taking the stand that we were, and it was biblical in nature, but we did have moments where we thought, well, look, if this ends up resulting in my arrest, what impact is that going to have? And we were thinking, well, maybe it'll wake up some Albertans. Mm. You know, we thought like maybe some folks here in Alberta will wake up a little bit, or maybe some folks in Canada will wake up a little bit and see what's going on. But we never had any, any reason to believe this thing was going to go international yeah. like it did. And so... um, so both before things got heated and even in the midst of it, there's no way that we had any idea that things were going to get as as visible in public as they did. And certainly, as you mentioned, your children as a father, as a husband, uh, when you ultimately were arrested, what went through your mind? Was there any sort of second guessing that had I made the right decision or, you know, how did you process that? 
the way that everything progressed, it progressed in a very methodical, step-by-step manner. There were hurdles and intervals that we were we were crossing. And so there was lots of time to build up to the point when I was arrested the first time on February 7th, and then the second time um, that led to my ultimate incarceration. And so so there was lots of time to build up to that. And, and there wasn't really a questioning of anything at that particular point. I do recall that before things did get heated, uh, we had settled the theological side of it back in the summer of 2020 and knew we were going to be open. Well, by the, the fall of 2020, we began to actually be more educated in our, our legal system and, and how the legal system works. We had a lawyer who was equipping us to understand what our rights were in terms of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms here in Canada. And so there was a, a week uh, in the fall where my focus had moved away from the theological to looking at the the rights that we had legally. And I had to kind of get back into the place of, hang on a second, so that's good. I need to, I need to lay that brick and understand that. But but why am I doing this? And it's theological in nature. And so I had to kind of revisit the foundation of everything. And then from there on, it was just, it was just, you know, press on and, and plow through. Now, as a leadership, as we were going over those intervals and, and hurdles, we, uh, we had to evaluate at each point, are we going to stay the course? Are we going to stay the course? Because you're in a collective leadership. So it wasn't all on me to make the decision. And we just continually came together and met and agreed, no, we're going to stay open. We're going we're gonna to press on. We're going to move forward. And that ended with my imprisonment. When I got imprisoned, our leadership was done talking about whether or not we're going to keep going. I mean, that just settled it. Uh, we, were, we were going all the way. And um, so, yeah, were there moments of second guessing things as it, as it really got toward my arrests and imprisonment? I don't think I recall that. There were some difficult moments but not because I was questioning what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. I was just feeling the weight of what might happen because I was going to do what I knew I needed to do. So and I talk about that in the book, actually. I, I take you into some difficult moments along the way as I was staring uh, imprisonment in the face to let the reader really appreciate what it was like to go through that. I mean, a lot of folks just kind of see the courage mm-hmm. And they think I'm this incredibly courageous man. Well, if you could just be in there along the way, what you see in the pulpit is a spirit empowered moment as I preach the word of God. But there are moments of difficulty and challenge and turmoil along the way. And I try and bring folks into that to appreciate that so they can see my weakness and really then give glory to Christ, who's my strength. And that's what what folks are seeing when they see me preach. Mm. Yeah, you certainly do go through many of the uh, the details of your story in the book, God versus Government. And I want to ask, what were those conversations like with your wife? I remember uh, she was handling some of the emails when you had first been imprisoned, and uh, we had the opportunity to email a little bit with her. I want to know, how did you navigate that as a husband uh, and then also as a father? Because that's, that's another layer uh, that had to be incredibly daunting for you. You know, it's amazing because as I reflect back on it, it's not like we had these family meetings where we had to kind of get together at the kitchen table and really talk this thing out. We were living it moment by moment together as a family. 
my children were there as the RCMP was inside our our church building for our Sunday services, as AHS was coming to our our services, as the media was across the street doing video. They were there to witness it all. And so it was organic in -hmm. terms of the discussions that we were having, in terms of um, living that out with my family. And as it relates to my wife, I mean, my wife is an incredibly courageous, um, you know, woman of conviction. And so there was really never any doubt for her. I didn't have to bring her along. If anything, there were times when she was having to bring me along. She, she would not be open to the idea of us shutting down and closing our church. She was as resolved as I was to keep it open. And, and so she was willing to walk the path. Now, it was difficult for her. Even now, she can't watch the video of my release that's online. It just takes her back to a difficult place. But but her commitment and resolve to follow Christ, even when it's difficult, is there. So that was helpful for, helpful for me. Because if I had a wife who I was like having to bring along and, and, and convince and persuade that we've got to do this, dear, that would have made it so much more difficult. I didn't have to do that. I didn't have to do that at all. Mm-hmm. And so she was uh, a wonderful gift. And, and I think that's when you look at what happened, you see God's providence. He put everything in place from our leadership to my wife, to our congregation, everything was in place for our church to take this stand. And and to have a leadership that was united, that in and of itself is incredibly difficult on this issue because you can have leaderships that are divided on on this whole thing. And and then for a wife to be supportive and then for our congregation to be committed to one another and, and committed to Christ. So we just had all of the ingredients you needed to take that stand as well as grace community church they had the same the same thing their leadership the wives all of the ingredients were there and so that just lent itself to us being able to take the stand Hmm. and i want to ask you mentioned the leadership at grace life uh, church and also grace community Uh, i want to ask how did this entire process uh, maybe strengthen y'all's bonds uh, pastorally Uh, how did it strengthen the congregation Uh, what does it look like now on the other end of all of this well i think if I wasn't there, obviously, during my imprisonment, but the the sense that I've gotten from our people in terms of the love for each other that was palpable in those gatherings. I mean, we loved each other already, but this took it to a new level. I mean, when you go through suffering together and uh, and 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 it's for the sake of Christ. So so it really strengthened our love. I think when people came to our gathering who were visitors and saw the love that we had for each other. They were taken aback by it. It's not the norm. It's not what you typically experience in a local church setting, unfortunately. Mm. And so it's really done that. Now, our church has nearly tripled in size now. I mean, we've had three Sundays of over 900 in attendance. And so we're now in a process of trying to get to know these new folks. And, And so Grace Life Church has undergone some change as a result of all of this. But um, but we're excited about moving forward and 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 getting to know these folks and and bringing them into that fellowship that we've come to love and enjoy and cherish. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's strengthened us. It's matured us. It's made us ready for whatever's to come uh, in the future, because we know these battles are just beginning. You know, this is uh, sort of a dress rehearsal for whatever is to come or the tip of the iceberg, as it were. And so. 
So yeah, we've got just a wonderful body of believers committed to each other, love one another. And, uh, and it's really, a, it's a precious thing to be a part of. And you, during your uh, more than 30 days that you were incarcerated, you released a letter to your church uh, talking about the ways you were able to minister and the ways that God was able to uh, take the, you know, what the world as scripture would say meant for evil uh, and used it for good. Uh, so I wanted to ask if you can give us a little bit of insight into the ways you were able to minister to other people who were incarcerated at that time. Well, I was get I got so much visibility while I was in prison. When you're in prison, your cell has access to radio stations. And one of those radio stations is talk radio. And they're doing a, a, a news loop almost every 30 minutes. And then plus there were conversations that were taking place about me and the stand that we were taking. And so a lot of visibility was brought to me. So they were just coming to me. I mean, I didn't have to go to them. They, they knew that I was the pastor and they were taken up by our story. You know, you have access to the newspaper. And so they'd see I'm on the front page of the news. And so when they found out who I was and, and that I was on their pod, they were coming to me and just asking me for counsel, prayer, giving me opportunities to share the gospel with them. Uh, there were guys that were there who were asking for Bible study. And so I was doing a Bible study in the gospel of John with them. There were guys that were asking for a church service. And I, I was... I, I looked into being able to do that and, and ultimately was asked not to by the, the, uh, the guards, but, but ultimately it was just, uh, it was coming, they were coming to me, the opportunities to minister, counsel, pray, share the gospel. It was just coming to me. And, uh, it was really, it was really something to see. And how did that, I imagine that that was an encouragement to you and helped sustain you, uh, through your time in prison, how did that maybe grow your own faith or, or give you a sense of comfortability maybe while you were in, in prison? Well, it showed me that I can still be useful mm-hmm. in prison. I mean, there's no question that being in prison, I'm limited in some in some ways as far as the ministry that I can carry out because I, I don't have access to my books and my commentaries and I can't, I'm not preaching sermons and and that kind of a thing, but I can be in prison and still be useful to the Lord. So I think that's significant. And I think one of the lessons that I learned in being in prison is that I was going into this world where everything was new. I was concerned about my well-being, my safety, going in. Every new step was a new step, even just in being processed as a as a, an inmate into the whole facility. And the Lord showed me that he was with me, just like Psalm 139, whether I make my bed in heaven or in Sheol, He's with me. I can't flee from his presence. And so the same providential care that I experienced uh, just in my life up to that point in time in Christ, uh, I experienced in prison as well. And so the Lord was with me. His hand was upon me. And and so I think the opportunities to minister showed me I could be useful and showed me the Lord was with me. And uh, I didn't have to, to be concerned mm. in my new environment. And you mentioned a psalm there, and I know you talk about some of this also again in, in God versus Government, the new book. But I, I want to ask, uh, what scripture passages were maybe uh, encouraging to you uh, and lifted you up during that process? Well, Psalm 56 was an important one that ministered to me, and uh, it just, it, I'm trying to recall it right now, but it revolves around fear to some extent and, and, and the oppression of your enemy. And so I think Psalm 56 was important. I, I, I remember reading Philippians, the entire letter in my, in my initial, that first few hours that I was in prison, 
um, when I first turned myself in to the RCMP leading up to my incarceration. I mean, that was, um, that was, you know, that was incredibly helpful to see the way that, um, the gospel was going forth with power through Paul's imprisonment and then being able to see the same thing was happening in my case that as I was imprisoned, the gospel was going forth as well. So, so Philippians one certainly ministered to me. I had lots of letters being written to me from all over the world and those strengthened me and encouraged me. And they would always be referring to portions of scripture and Philippians one was often cited in those, in those letters. Um, So, yeah, I mean, Daniel 3, Daniel 6, all the passages that you would normally think to go to in light of a stand, like the one that we were taking, uh, were, were incredibly important to me. And so you were ultimately released after I believe it was 35 days uh, in late March of 2021. Uh, but that the, the journey with the government didn't stop there. Uh, your church ended up being barricaded. Uh, roads were blocked off. Uh, I want to know if you can look back on that. And, and was it a surreal experience? Was it? I, I'm certain there it was somewhat unbelievable at the time. I would imagine. It is looking back on it very surreal. It's hard to imagine that a year ago I was in prison and then, you know, what, whatever it would be, I guess it'd be something like, you know, 10 or 11 months ago, our building was, was locked up and we couldn't have access to it. You know, what a difference a year makes. So the whole experience is definitely surreal. Uh, seems like a long time ago in one sense and like yesterday in another, mm-hmm. it's really been a, an incredible journey. And, and I mean, if you had told us that, ahead of time that was going to happen we never would have believed you and it did so it was very surreal um you know at that time things looked uh, excuse me pretty bleak we were pretty we were looking at the trajectory of things in our province and country and uh and and the trajectory was not looking good and so where we are now there's still definitely concerns about where our country is headed but just today for example all COVID-19 restrictions have been lifted in our province. So the mask mandate ends today. And so there's no more mask mandate in our province. There's no capacity limits on, on worship gatherings or anything else. The vaccine passport that prevented you from going into a restaurant, that's done. So our province has lifted all of that, which is, uh, which is positive. And, and whether that'll stay in place or not is the question, of course. We're still limited in our country as far as travel can't get on a plane without a vaccine passport. And, and we can't even get into your country, for example, without a vaccine passport. Um, and, that, and that's coming from your president, Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. So there are still some, some uh, unjustified and unscientific mandates in place. But, um, but things don't appear quite as bleak as they did a year ago. Yeah. And, you know, looking back, I, I remember seeing uh, stories, and we reported on it here at Faithwire, about your church, uh, Grace Life, having to go underground even after uh, the the church was, was locked up, the barricades were put in place. Could you tell us a little bit about what that was like to have to lead a church from an undisclosed location uh, in the Western world? Well, the administration of that is really challenging. You know, to, to make that a to make that happen and have four or five hundred folks traveling to an undisclosed location to make that happen practically from an administrative point of view is very challenging. But once you get there 
it's wonderful. Mm. I mean, we had some wonderful um, gatherings out under the sun with the preaching of the word of God, singing. Uh, it was it was it was wonderful. And so there was certainly a degree of consternation as it relates to the governing authorities because we were waiting for them to sort of seek us out and find us. And I tell some stories of how that took place and how they almost got us at one point and and didn't. And it revolves around even Pastor Tim Stevens and his uh, arrest and and his first imprisonment. So so yeah, it was the the gatherings themselves were wonderful. Um, administrating all of that rather difficult. And, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of joked a little bit that we might do an undisclosed location service every summer just to sort of, you know, commemorate mm. what we, what we experienced last year. Happy to be back in our building, but, um, those gatherings were sweet. Yeah. Absolutely. And before we round out our conversation, I'm going to ask you a couple questions about the book. But first, I wanted to ask you, uh, and this will tie into the book too, uh, how did your camaraderie with Grace Community Church, with Pastor MacArthur, John MacArthur, how did that uh, come uh, out of this process? Well, early on in my imprisonment, my wife shared with me a voicemail that John MacArthur had left for her. And, um, it was just incredibly encouraging. I mean, his ministry has shaped my ministry more so than any other. And he's really been, in a sense, the Apostle Paul to me. Mm. He's been the Paul in my life, me the Timothy. And even though we didn't know each other that personally at that time, uh, he was discipling me through his preaching and just through his ministry in general. And so so when he uh, reached out to my wife with the words of encouragement that she that he had for her, I mean, that was sort of the beginning of it. And then the Master's Seminary came out with a, 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 a statement in support of me, standing with me. And, and so that was really where things uh, began to, to develop. And then when I was released from my imprisonment thereafter, there was lots of opportunity to connect with John MacArthur, Nathan Busnitz, again, the co-author of God vs. Government. And, and so that relationship began to develop, even to the point where I wrote his church, Grace Community Church, a letter. Mm-hmm. And it was read in their gathering, uh, almost like a, a letter, you know, like we'd see in the, the New Testament. So just a, just an amazing thing to, to see the way that he has supported us and, um, and, and just been a support to me and encouragement to me. I feel like he's taken me under his wing a little bit and, uh, and spoken into my life and encouraged me. So uh, that camaraderie just came out of the fact that we were taking the same stand. And and with my connection to the Master's Seminary, there's a responsibility they feel for their graduates. And so they loved me and cared for me in our church. And uh, just really a, a wonderful thing. And I can certainly see that the relationship is there, given I can look at the back of your bookshelf and see several books uh, by uh, John MacArthur. Um, so I'm sure it was a, a surreal experience to be meeting him uh, and, and connecting with him again under these kinds of circumstances, probably not the, the way you imagined. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and you know, when you when you listen to John MacArthur preach, you see him in the pulpit and he preaches with with authority. You know, he, he's 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 authoritative and he's like a lion in the pulpit. And yet when you. In, interact with the man outside of the pulpit. I mean, he is incredibly kind mm-hmm. and gentle and uh, loving and tender. 
And so, you know, you see the man you see in the pulpit, which is still an expression of love and, and kindness because he's, he's ministering the word of God to you. But you can get the wrong impression if you think that that just sums up the man. Uh, he is uh, just an, an incredibly encouraging, kind, generous man. And I've gotten to see that firsthand in this time. And so it's really been a blessing to me. So you you decided to to co-author this book. John MacArthur actually wrote the foreword in God versus Government. Uh, it, it couldn't come at a better time because I know so many people are talking about this issue, uh, the issue of religious freedom, religious liberty, and protection of religious rights. Uh, why did you decide to tell your story? Do you foresee uh, this issue of, of religious oppression becoming more of an issue in the days to come? Well, I do. And to your point, I would almost say that this book is as relevant or more than when we wrote it back in the summer of, of 2021. So yeah, I think when you look at what's happening in your country, in our country, and even around the world, governments are seeking to establish totalitarian authority over their citizen citizenship. And so I think this is going to continue to, to take place. There's going to continue to be battles. And I think that the the, the story itself being a really practical illustration of what it looks like to take a courageous stand on the word of God, as well as the framework that we provide in the book to navigate government and to know when it's time to obey God, not men, is going to be really helpful. So we, we think this book has the potential to be um, instrumental, and it serves a purpose in our day and time that that needs to be needs to be there in order for us to navigate the the tumultuous waters that are likely ahead of us. And then my final question for you, Pastor, is just spiritually. Uh, obviously, it, it's this is a, an excellent resource. Uh, the book is an excellent resource for believers uh, to prepare for what may be coming. But spiritually, prayerfully, how can believers be praying uh, or be preparing, I'm sorry, for the season uh, to come of potentially more uh, attacks on religious liberty? Yeah, I think I think it's there isn't really a, a surprising novel recipe for this. I think it's daily walking with Christ. It's it's being in His Word, His Word being in you. It's abiding in Christ, John fifteen, and and it's dealing with the sin that's in your life, cultivating obedience, having convictions that that you will not move on, and graciously learning how to to hold those convictions and walk in them. Uh, submissively, humbly. I think just living the Christian life and growing in faithfulness and obedience and maturity is the pathway to preparing for all of this. And so it's not anything um, sort of special and unique that needs to happen. It's just faithfulness to Christ, daily walking with Christ. That is the recipe for uh, solidifying what needs to be in place to be able to take the stand that, that we may have to take in the future. Well, thank you so much, Pastor James Coates. I appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having us, having me. So that was Pastor James Coates. He has such an incredible story. Uh, there, there just was a lot, a lot that we went through there. But Billy, what did you think of it? You know, I think it's one of those rare examples of somebody having to live out their faith or choosing to live out their faith to the extreme. And I don't mean extreme in a negative way, but but really knowing that you're going to sacrifice or lose something based on your mm -hmm. conviction. And in his case, it was more than a month of freedom. 
And yeah. so it just, it's, you know, it's foreign to us in America in so many ways. And obviously this is Canada. Um, yet it, it could be coming here very soon. Yeah, no, I, I don't think that just because it's it's in a different country, it is in Canada. It's it's they're our neighbor. It's in the West, um, and it's something that even different parts of the United States they kind of toyed with, um, you know, being hyper restrictive. I and mean, we saw some crazy stuff coming out of California, and even the way uh, that Jewish communities were treated in, like Orthodox Jewish communities were treated in New York City. So uh, we have plenty of those stories that we've written about at CBN News and Faithwire, and and obviously. Um, those stories are elsewhere too. So I, I don't think it's that far removed from something that could be a reality for us here in the States at some point. Um, but I think probably the most impactful part of the conversation for me, Billy, was when he was talking about like, separating out the fact that this was, he kind of became a political mascot, so to speak. Uh, but his motivations were not, not at all political. Uh, his motivations were, look, this is my conviction that our church should be open, that we shouldn't be closed, and we're going to stand by that. Now it's going to have political ramifications, but that was not his intention. And you could you could hear his conviction coming through in the conversation, which I really appreciated. Yeah, no, and and I think, you know, look at Finland and look at, I mean, there's lots of other countries that are supposedly very free countries with constitutions that grant you rights, you know, religious or speech freedom rights that are cracking down. So, you know, when I look at this, when I look at this situation, I go back to the panic and the chaos that was going on during COVID. Usually when there's panic and chaos, you don't make good policy decisions, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, you've got all these essential businesses out there that were operating, and I know we've rehashed this again and again, but I think it's really important to note, churches provide resources and information and food and money. I mean, there's so many things to people in the community, and they provide community. And yeah. so the idea that a church isn't an essential service and that you would put barriers up around a church literally and figuratively to prevent people to enter that church during a time when suicide and opioid addiction deaths are at sky-high you know, increasing rates to me is just bizarre. And I hope we've learned our lesson, but I know, you know, you and I have been around the block enough to know that we probably haven't. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, to your point, Billy, there have been actually a couple governors in a couple red states, Republican led states that have actually instituted legislation that if this kind of thing happens again, if emergency powers need to be invoked again, uh, churches have been carved out as essential uh, services. So they will be excluded from being shut down. Look, they're going to be kept open with grocery stores. I mean, people were roaming around Walmart, if you remember, getting their groceries, but they weren't able to go and sit uh, in church at a worship service. So I know that was a sticking point for a lot of believers. And look, looking back in retrospect and seeing that a lot of these restrictions, of course, in 2022 have thankfully rolled back and and are not in place anymore. I think one of the most... um, encouraging things that Pastor Coates said uh, was about his uh, the the courage that he had to speak out. He said a lot of people look back and think I was this incredibly courageous man, but he said during our conversation that that was not him. He said, I was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He said, that was who was preaching through me uh, when I spoke boldly, or that was who was writing those letters that he wrote uh, and he released to his congregation when he was in prison. He said, there were moments that he had to even, and this I thought was really cool. He said, I had to lean on my wife. 
He said, because there were moments, yep. not that I doubted, but there were moments when it was really tough as a father, as a pastor, as a husband to be going through what I, what he was going through. Uh, he said that his wife was an incredibly courageous woman of conviction. And I think that says a lot, not just about her, but about their relationship with one another. Absolutely. she And she was on board with it. I was going to bring that up, so I'm glad you did. You know, obviously she was on board with this and she was there for him. And you got to have that kind of thing when you're when your partner's talking about being gone for, you know, over a month and you're, you know, that's a big decision when you've got kids and a family. And so I thought that was, that was pretty amazing. You know, look, a lot of people are going to look at this and say, what a crazy person. He should have just shut his church down and listened to the government. You know, I think that there are a lot of slippery slope arguments. And in this case, in light of what we know now, I think that it was much more problematic to have the rules. I mean, look, we were complaining about fines and things like that here, but when you start throwing people in jail, it's just not a good look on the international stage, and it's very concerning to me in, in the world we're living in because guess what? There are a lot of issues that the government has changed their mind on, and when the government changes its mind and wields its power and punishes people when they don't comply or agree, that's, you know, you're asking for some very tricky, dangerous ground there on the free speech and religious freedom front. So I'm, yeah, I don't know. I'm just wondering what's next at this point. Yeah. And also, too, within the full context, and he mentioned this in the conversation, that people made assumptions about him and about his church based on his conviction to stay open, that they assumed he was being completely careless, that he wasn't doing what he needed to do, that the church wasn't being cautious and careful, particularly in the early stages. And he said, look, we were careful. We did the distancing thing. We asked people to wear masks, particularly right at the beginning. And then he said that there were a couple times uh, that they actually did uh, you know, just hold virtual meetings before they ended up going uh, underground. Uh, he said that we did hold some virtual meetings because there were several people in our community who were sick and we didn't know uh, what that would look like if it spread. So I was glad that he kind of spoke into that and said, that these are the assumptions people are making about me, um, but they're not necessarily the truth. Yeah, I mean, lots of great, lots of great, powerful, important lessons for us here. And I think we have very few people to look up to in this regard. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a, there's a lot there. And again, people are some people are going to cringe at that. Other people are going to understand that. But I think, look, even if you're an atheist, you should be able to see that this is a person who stood by his values, stood by what he believed, and he was willing to risk prison time for it. That is incredibly rare. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so that is all the time we have for this episode of the Prodigal Stories podcast. It was a little bit longer, but I wanted to to make sure we shared all of Pastor Coates' story. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of the podcast, and join us next week for a new episode.